Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, questions arise about why it took more than 12 hours for the Canadian Armed Forces to confirm last week's helicopter crash. The military has very important protocols in place uh, when there is a tragic incident like this around informing uh, the next of kin, talking to the families uh, as quickly as possible before sharing uh, information with the general public. Uh, all those protocols were followed. $252 million in federal funding is set aside to help Canada's farmers. Their safety is paramount. And as we move towards restarting parts of the economy, we must ensure proper measures are in place to continue to protect our workers. And is the drop in the number of positive COVID-19 tests in Canada a sign that the pandemic is easing off? The daily growth rate of cases is really slowing down. I think we've been saying on average about 3% daily growth now compared to much higher before. It's Wednesday, May the 6th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald, Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks for calling, Mark. There are many questions being asked about the crash of a military helicopter. Canadian lives were lost in that crash. And one of the issues that has arisen, among others, is why it took so long to hear about it. Uh, what are your thoughts on on what we may learn in the hours and days ahead about this crash? Well, you know, new evidence is emerging um, from the from the military and, and from the crew of HMCS Fredericton about the crash uh, of the Cyclone helicopter the other day uh, off the coast of Greece. Um, it uh, does appear now that uh, members of the crew were able to see the actual crash. In other words, it was the, the uh, helicopter was heading back to the ship when it uh, when it went down. So I think uh, you know there, there's there's got to be a state of shock aboard the ship for one thing, but secondly, the military has regulations and rules and forms up the nose and uh, it takes sometimes a long time to get things done and especially to get word out say to the public um, about uh, mishaps and things that happen I mean if you if uh, you know listeners think back to the war in Afghanistan when when people were lost in the field there to uh, to enemy action or to mishap, um, it did take a while uh, to report those things, partly for the security of the ship. The ship is on operation. It's not sailing around uh, the Mediterranean, uh, you know, so everyone can get a tan. It, it's over there working with the NATO uh, group. So everything is under operational security, um, and these things do take time. Now, maybe it could have been a little faster than 12 hours. But in a way, I'm not really surprised to find out that, uh, you know, it did take quite a while for word to work its way out back in the public. All right, let's turn to the battle against the coronavirus and a couple of interesting themes here. First of all, there is some evidence that the curve is being flattened, some uh, efforts to restart economies across the country in limited ways. Um, is, are we winning the battle, first of all? Is that what the numbers suggest? Well, I wish I knew. I mean, you know, uh, there's so much talk about winning phase one of the battle and then having phase two appear maybe in the fall. Uh, you know, I, I know there are a lot of experts 
who are suggesting that, and this is way beyond my ability to understand these things. Um, but, you know, if you, if you take the way the public is behaving, I mean, you know, there's, there is a, a noisy, small but noisy minority of people who say this is just baloney, get out of the way, get everything back to work and, and let the chips fall where they may. That's not really where Canadians are. You know, most Canadians uh, support, uh, according to a new poll, at least that the Canadian press did this week, they seem to suggest that uh, Canadians are willing to let their provincial governments and their municipalities and other regulators uh, cautiously reopen the economy step at a time um, while trying to maintain uh, public safety as much as possible. So, um, you know, there are encouraging signs out there on the sort of the larger um, picture. I mean, also, you know, like say provinces in Nova, like Nova Scotia, which has got one of the highest infection rates and mortality rates uh, in the country. Uh, but um, most of it all happening in one large senior citizens complex in Halifax. So uh, there are, you know, there is progress being made in, in limiting it and corralling it in certain areas. Um, but I don't think Canadians are really at the ramparts demanding that uh, they just drop the restrictions and head back to normal. And it'll be interesting to see the extent to which people choose to return to normal, even when they're allowed to. Uh, and I know that there's been this whole side debate as well about whether or not the emergency response benefit is a disincentive to go back to work. Uh, the Conservatives have been alleging that some people will just stay home and take the government money instead of going back to their jobs. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's one of the dumbest political messages I've heard in a long time. I mean, if there's mass dislocation in the economy, massive dislocation, uh, and if the government is there um, trying to hold the line and keeping people from losing their shirts, uh, let alone their apartments or their houses, um, you know, to, to claim that that's a big disincentive, uh, to me, that's just dangerous talk. I, I, I mean, Andrew Scheer is becoming sort of infamous for making that comments about, oh, this is a tranquilizer on the economy, etc. Uh, this is not the time to be saying stuff like that. We, you know, if we get out through the end of this and we weren't having new cases and it just seemed like a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, overcautious ninnies in Ottawa were preventing people from working and, and subsidizing laziness or, or whatever, but, you know, no party has any proof that that's happening. And while I do believe that when you have that much money being sprayed around in the economy, some abuses will occur. But to me, that's not um, to say that uh, the mass of people don't want to go back to work because it implies Canadians are a bunch of lazy bums, and we're not. And uh, any party that says that does so at their own peril. Let's talk about the $252 million in funding that the government has set aside for farmers and others in the agri-food sector who have been affected by the pandemic. Uh, is that enough? Is it going to the right places? Well, you know, time will tell. And, uh, you know, I, I doubt that that's the final number. I have a sense it's going to go quite a bit higher than that. Uh, and it's immensely complex uh, question, too, Mark. I mean, you have the issue of, uh, you know, foreign temporary workers who do so much work in the actual farm fields of this country. Um, what are they going to do about the meatpacking situation? Uh, you know, some of the meatpacking plants out west have been uh, hotspots for coronavirus infection. I mean, there's the distribution aspect of it. You know, any of us who've gone to the grocery store in the past, uh, you know, couple of months, 
uh, we're seeing things we're not used to seeing, you know, the gaps in the supply chain that have already appeared. So, you know, I don't think that's going to be the final number, and I do think you'll see it go higher. How it actually applies on the farm or in the supply chain, I don't know yet, but uh, um, I'm sure the uh, I'm sure the government's getting some advice on this. We'll have to see where it goes. I mean, the main thing is to keep the farms operating. We have to maintain national capability to feed ourselves, and and this is this whole crisis has illustrated some of the weak spots in that system that that have to be repaired. The bill is adding up, obviously, though, and we're hearing big numbers being thrown around in terms of projected deficits. What impact is this going to have on federal finances going forward? This is all, uh, this isn't just about the federal government, it's about all of us, right? This is money that we're all going to have to pay back over time. Yes, um, you know, uh, yeah, we are going to have to pay it back over time, but somehow Canada paid for the Second World War. Um, you know, with a very even higher uh, percentage of GDP being uh, put into government spending, I mean these things can be smoothed out. It's a country, um, you know. It's 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 not. Uh, you know, the bills don't have to be paid by the end of next month, sort of thing. Right. And so, uh, this can be smoothed out over many many years. And uh, you know, uh, hopefully, if we restore the economy in a smart way and get things rolling back to something close to the way it was. Like, for instance, I don't know where energy is going to be. I don't know where airlines are going to be a year from now or where hotels and tourism are going to be. These are big issues um, and big gaps that, that could still remain. Um, and it's going to be crucial to get things restarted and running again as soon as possible because that's how we're going to pay the bill. And, uh, you know, no government's going to come in with a sweeping massive tax increase uh, suddenly, because uh, it, it isn't necessary for one thing, um, and uh, and people won't accept it. So there's been pretty good buy-in in the public, you know, over the COVID-19 restrictions and the social distancing and things like that. They may they're also going to need uh, public buy-in for measures that that follow this whole crisis. And what about the conservative leadership race? There's a report in the Hill Times suggesting that uh, it'll be decided by Labor Day and a new leader will be in place at that time. What's your take on the timeline and also the race as it's shaping up largely between Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole? Well, uh, you know, if I was a Conservative Party member, and I'm not, but if I was, I would be wishing to get this over with as soon as possible because, you know, all four leadership campaigns, McKay, O'Toole, and the two lesser-known ones are all running around making uh, conflicting statements, uh, causing doubt in people's minds about what conservative policy actually is. There's a lot of playing to the base in the conservative party. Uh, that base can't get governments elected. And uh, so, you know, I don't know. If, if, you know, if I was a conservative, dues-paying conservative member, I would want this thing to get settled somehow. And get a leadership, uh, uh, get a leader in there, because right now the vacuum is producing all kinds of unwanted side effects and mixed up messaging. And uh, that's not really where the conservatives want to be right now, I don't think. All right, Dan, great to have your comments on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Talk to you soon. That's Dan Legere, author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald. On the one hand, they will have an option perhaps to return to work while hoping that there isn't a second wave, even though that will jeopardize their emergency response benefits. Or on the other hand, they could wait, stay on the benefit and wait until the uncertainty 
passes. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues many of Canada's conservative premiers are looking statesmanlike, while the federal leader and his wannabes appear increasingly pathetic. Martin writes, While premiers Doug Ford, Scott Moe, and Brian Pallister work cooperatively to reopen their provinces, federal conservative political priorities are a mixture of coronavirus China bashing, lazy worker alleging, and assault gun defending pitches to the party's basest instincts. As we watch our society, economy, and indeed our country transform, unravel, and divide, they offer up a void of genuine charisma and defining policy ideas beyond the same old, same old that cost their party the last election. If the Conservatives fail to sacrifice base instincts for broader appeal, they won't have the power to do anything but sulk in opposition after the next election. In the Globe and Mail, Lawrence Martin argues the U.S.-China schism brings Cold War II closer than ever. Martin writes, The coronavirus pandemic has seen the mutual accommodation between these two giants grind to a halt. If the relationship is faltering now, imagine how it will be in six months. The combination of the pandemic and political demands threatens to turn trade and tech tensions with China into a drawn-out confrontation for superiority, rivaling the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. Given that China is no economic weakling like the Soviets, the outcome would be far less certain. At National News Watch, Glenn Pearson argues there are too many unknowns for us to plan for anything beyond the near future. Pearson writes, Something new must emerge after COVID-19, but its success will depend on all those citizens pining for the beach, for reopened stores, and the next cruise deal. Many will be the same ones returning to minimum wage jobs with no benefits, a planet on the ropes, and little, if any, true pension prospects. We will all have to not only think differently, but be different as well. We must migrate from consumer to citizen and from anger to agency to shape the future we want. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. A repatriation ceremony will be held at CFB Trenton for the six Canadian Armed Forces members killed in a helicopter crash last week. And Green Party Parliamentary Leader Elizabeth May will hold a news conference in Ottawa. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, May the 6th. Tune into CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.